Father, we open your word. We ask again for you to bless the preaching, the hearing, the application to the heart, and the living out of what we're about to read. Living out of the truth, the living out of what your spirit has ordained, what, what you have empowered us to be and do in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we do it for your glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we did read Second Kings 5 earlier. Um, this is a text that shows how God deals with the hearts of people. Uh, quite frankly, it, it just it, it it shows how God relates to people, how he how he saves, and it's a shocking text. In fact, it's so shocking that centuries later, when Jesus brought this text up, it about got him killed. And that's because as sinners, we basically want things the way we want things. We pray that God will work among us, but when He chooses to work in a way that we don't necessarily it doesn't fit what we want. It reveals our hearts. It, 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 you know, we, we sometimes can give lip service to the God of the Bible, but we too often want God our way. There's the old Burger King commercial, you know, you can have it your way, and, and too often we want God our way. We want Him to conform to our standards. We want Him to not be so harsh on us, but to, to kind of understand where we're coming from, when really what God wants us to do is to come to Him on His terms. And it was, it's like that now. It was like that in the 9th century B.C., um, 2,800 years ago uh, plus. And in 2 Kings 5, last week we were in 2 Kings 17, so this is before what we talked about last week, but we're in the era of the divided kingdom. You've got Judah to the south and Israel to the north, and again to the north is, where we're, uh, is what the focus is on this morning. And if you recall, while Judah was reigned by a line of kings that descended from David. Israel was reigned by a never-ending train of idolatrous kings, of, of, of kings who wanted to be like the nations, of kings who did some unspeakable acts. In fact, one of them was named Ahab, and he's one of the worst. He was horribly wicked, maybe the worst of the northern kings. And, you know, what made it so bad for Ahab is not just his acts, but he had access to real prophets of God. He had access to men like Elijah and Micaiah. And you know, instead he decided to surround himself with false prophets. Essentially they were yes men who told the king what he wanted to, to hear. In fact, 1 Kings 22 is very blunt about that. Uh, I mentioned Micaiah actually last week. He's the one who had told Ahab that uh, these men telling you what you want to hear aren't right. You're actually going to go into battle. You're going to die in that battle. And that's precisely what happened. That battle was with the Arameans, and while this is not confirmed by Scripture, there's a historian from the first century from Jesus' time named Josephus who records that the man who killed Ahab, and of course we can't verify this by Scripture, but the man who killed Ahab was Naaman the Aramean who we just read about in Second Kings chapter 5. So this is happening while the northern kingdom is still around. They had recently been defeated in that battle where Ahab was killed by the Arameans, uh, you sometimes, by the way, see Aram and Syria, the names, the two names used interchangeably. So if I do that, know that I'm doing it, um, I'm going to try to stick with Aram or Arameans, but they were the dominant regional power of the time. 
Uh, later you're going to have the Assyrians come in and, and conquer, and then later on the Babylonians, but for now it was the Arameans. And they had this kind of hot and cold war going with Israel. And, and during the time of 2 Kings 5, it's a cold spell. So uh, what we see in this chapter, though, it, it, man has his own ideas about how things should be. Uh, but God through His Word and through His actions is going to transcend the heart of dead sinners and bring life and salvation. But you, again, you have to come to God on His terms. You have to come to God on His terms, and failure to do that is absolutely disastrous. Failure to come to God, because God is not the one who's dependent upon us. We are the ones who are dependent upon God. God is the one who is sovereign. God is so sovereign over all, and He saves all men everywhere who repent and, and humble themselves and come to Him by faith. In verse 1, if you look at your text, we see that Naaman is what? He's the captain of the army of the king of Aram. What that means is essentially that he is the commander-in-chief of a dominant military power. So this is not an insignificant man. This is a man who commanded respect from everyone under him. And in fact, what we see here is that he was a great man with his master. And who's the only man who is the master of the commander-in-chief of the army? It is the king himself. So he was a great man in the eyes of the king. He was highly respected. And why is that? It's because the Lord had given him, we read, the Lord had given him victory over Israel. Um, God, for His purposes, God's purposes, had made Naaman great. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, had given a Gentile victory over His people. The God of Israel had given someone else victory over Israel. So this chapter reminds us that God is the God of all nations. God is sovereign over His creation. He... God is not bound by national boundaries. God is not bound by the ethnicity of a people. God is not bound by your own personal history. God is not bound by anything but His own character, His holiness, His justice, His love. And God will use anyone and God will use anything He desires to bring judgment upon sin. And in this case, it was Israel because they were, as we have seen, in a state of perpetual sin. They never learned from their mistakes. They never stopped forsaking God, the northern kingdom. They acted just like the other nations. They practiced idolatry. We read last week how they made their children pass through the fire. Uh, They did not listen to the men God sent, the prophets, so God chose to give Naaman the victory instead. Which begs the question, why Naaman? What's so good about him? Was he any better than Israel? Was he any better than the Israelites? And the answer to that is, of course, no, he wasn't. But at the same time, the answer is also yes. It's no in the sense that Naaman is an idol worshiper just like all the others. Naaman is a good Aramean, and if you're a good Aramean, you worship in the temple of Ramon. You worship the idols. You do what your king says. You, you, you worship all these false gods. But the reason he's not as bad as the Israelites is because who should have known better? The Israelites. The Israelites should have known better than to act like the world. To whom much is given, much is required. Those are the words of Christ. And God had given Israel the covenants. God had given Israel the promises. God had given them the prophets. God had given them His Word. And yet, 
You know, even though they had the testimony of their forefathers, how God had delivered them time and again from their enemies, still, at present, even, you know, they they had a prophet of God among them by the name of Elisha. But, you know, still, they acted the way they acted. They sinned the way they sinned. They rebelled the way they rebelled. And God made Naaman great. He was a valiant warrior, a man to be respected, but we see he was a leper. That's how verse 1 ends. And leprosy, of course, is all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. We've seen it in our study of Luke, how Jesus cleanses a leper. And it's often used as a metaphor, as imagery for sin. And I believe it is here as well as, as we look backward on this. But practically speaking, there were several forms of leprosy. It appears as though Naaman did not have one of the more serious, debilitating forms of the disease. But it was serious enough to Naaman. It was serious enough to Naaman. It was serious enough to those who were around Naaman. In fact, we find out in verses 2 and 3, there was a little girl taken captive by Israel in the victory that Naaman won. And she is serving Naaman's wife in the providence of God. And this girl, I tell you what, she is the unspoken hero of this story. Because I'd like to think that if I were in her situation, if I were a captive, if I were a prisoner, that I would maintain a godly disposition. I'd like to think that my faith in Jesus Christ would radiate out of me. I'd like to think that in any kind of trial, that I would set my mind on things above and not on the things of the earth like Colossians 3 verse 2 says. And that's what this this little girl was doing. She was ripped away from home. But it's obvious in her words, she's got a concern for others. She's got a love for others, which in a situation like this can only be a God-given love. I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. That's love. She's loving her enemies here. With no hint of bitterness. No no hint of, of seeking selfish gain. You know... I, I spoke in Sunday school about the relationship between Jonathan and David and how love doesn't always give what the other person wants, but love always does what is best for the other person. Love always has the other person's best in mind. She's got her enemy's best in mind here. And so when Naaman finds out about this, you know she's expressing faith in God by talking about the prophet of his. When Naaman finds out about this, you'd think that he, you know, he'd have to have tried everything before, And now he finds this out, and rather than dismiss her to his master, the only master, again, that he could have is the king, and the king sends him to Israel and not empty-handed. Verse 5 we read, Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothes. That amounts to a lot of money. 750 pounds of silver, 150 of our pounds of gold, and the ten changes of clothes were quite a gift in and of themselves. But what this shows is Naaman and his king are going about fixing their problem, his problem, the way the world fixes problems. They were viewing his potential healing not through the eyes of faith. First of all, the girl, what did she say? That there's a prophet in Israel. He doesn't go to the prophet, he goes to the king. But Naaman and his king, they've got their minds on the things of the earth. And just as you know, oftentimes we view our potential problems 
we, our solutions are not from a place of faith. Our, our, our solutions are not from a place of God's Word. They're without a thought of God. Naaman and his king go about this with, with politics in mind, with, with worldly strategies in mind. And after all, if we think back to 1 Kings, if we think back to, to Ahab, the only, you know, I mean, the, rather the one that Naaman may have actually killed himself, Ahab had surrounded himself with yes-men, kind of false prophets. The Pharaoh in Exodus had surrounded himself with yes-men. And the king and Naaman were thinking that the way to be healed then was to go through the king of Israel because in their mind, prophets do the bidding of kings, not of any one true God. And that much is evident from the letter that he sends to the king of Israel. I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. They were putting it on this enemy king. They, they, were, not, they, were, not put, they were not appealing to the prophet himself. They were not appealing to, to even to God, their, their God. They were putting it on the king. And how often, beloved, do we place our hopes in worldly solutions like this? How often do we not put our hope in the God who created the heavens and the earth to solve our earthly problems? And how foolish was it for Naaman to trust in a mere man? But now the king of Israel, he gets this letter, and since Israel has recently been defeated, you can imagine how he reacted. He tears his clothes, which we see in Scripture, it's a, it's a cultural sign of pain, of, of torment, distress, anguish. He tears his clothes. And, and why does he do that? Because he knows he's not God. He, he, he can't fix this problem. He, he cannot, he, in his words, he can't kill and make alive. He can't cure leprosy. And though he knows of Elisha, it's clear he doesn't think Elisha can either. He doesn't trust in Elisha's God and like that captive girl back in Aram. And, and that explains the king's self-centered reaction. He, he's looking at himself here and pitying himself. He thinks Naaman's coming is all this ploy to attack him again. So regardless, the power of men, the power of even kings, is not sufficient to remedy Naaman's condition. And that brings us to Elisha. In verse 8, Elisha hears the king. He hears the king has torn his clothes. And this news, it would have made the rounds. So Elisha sends a message to the king, why have you done this? And Instead of waiting for an answer though, he asked the king to send Naaman to him. Send him to me. And somehow, you know, by divine revelation probably, Elisha is privy to all this that's going on. But note why Elisha wanted Naaman sent to him. Not to be cleansed and not to be healed. But what? So he would know there is a prophet in Israel. Remember, in Naaman's mind, prophets belong near the king. Well, Elisha wasn't welcome in the king's presence. So Elisha wants Naaman to know there is somebody speaking for God here. There is one who kills and makes alive. There is one who can cure your leprosy. And so Naaman goes... And if you look at that, he goes with his horses, he goes with his chariots, he goes in a manner befitting a man of distinction. And he arrives at Elisha's house, and so it is shocking when he comes to the doorway of the prophet that Elisha does not come out to greet him. Verse 10, 
Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. And so the question is, why did he do that? Why did Elisha decide to send a messenger? Well, here's why, as I understand it. It is to show Naaman that the power is not Elisha's. The power doesn't belong to Elisha. Elisha is not in charge of his own prophetic gift because the gift is not his own, it belongs to God. And he's not some wonder worker out to make a buck. He's not some some guy out to gain power. He's not out to fill a stadium and he's not out to sell books or even be buddies with the king. His job was to speak the word of God. And God would work according to His will, not anyone else's. So He doesn't meet Naaman, and what's more, (laughs) He sends Naaman away. You know, He sends for Naaman, then He sends him away somewhere else, go to the Jordan and get cleansed. And what is it? It is to show that God is the one who's going to do the work here, not Elisha. Whether or not he would follow the words of God would be in Naaman's hand. And how does Naaman respond here? Verse 11, verse 12. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was furious at the word of God. And that's what he'd gotten was the word of God. The way to be cured. He didn't trust in God's one and only provision for his cleansing. In fact, it's not even that he didn't trust it. He was insulted by it. It made him furious. It wasn't what he expected. It wasn't what he wanted. In his mind, Elisha's God was not different from any other local God. He, he wasn't unlike Ramon or, or any others. And God wasn't God to Naaman. God wasn't holy to Naaman. God wasn't unique to Naaman. God wasn't sovereign and high and lifted up to Naaman. He wasn't the Lord. So to Naaman... This was just another religious exercise. Something anyone would do at any time. Just another cleansing. Nothing truly special. And so it was insulting. It was degrading to wash in the Jordan. There's two rivers up at home that I could go and wash in better. So he goes away in a rage. Dissatisfied with God's word. Dissatisfied with God's provision for his cleansing. For his salvation from this leprosy. He expected to see Elisha. He expected a show. He even says to to come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He expected something befitting his earthly stature. Naaman's biggest problem, as it turned out, was not his leper's skin, but his leper's heart. Naaman heard the word of God. The word of God was not good enough for him. And that brings us to the next shocking element in this, verse 13, where his servants essentially call him out on his pride. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then 
when he says to you, wash and be clean. And you can almost hear through New Testament eyes and ears, and you can almost hear the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, you of little faith? How often, beloved, do we not trust in God to take care of even the smallest things in our lives? We of little faith. What's going on here is God is humbling the exalted and He is exalting the humbled. Everything, everyone at Naaman's social status and above exhibits no faith whatsoever in God or His prophet. But those under Him, the humble, are exhibiting the spiritual insight. They are uh, exhibiting the insight that helps the exalted ones. God is using everyone under Naaman, everyone lower than him in stature, to break through his pride and show him it's man who is made in the image of God. It's man who must conform to the will of God and not the other way around. God is the one in control. Elisha's God is the sovereign Lord. Naaman, you would have done this great thing Had Elisha told you to, why not do this little thing? And so Naaman finally does. He's convicted, it would seem. God resisted the proud. He gave grace to the humble. In verse 14, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, just like Elisha's messenger said, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Beloved, the obedience of faith is the product of a humbled heart. Once the leprosy on Naaman's heart began to be wiped away through his humility, the leprosy on his skin soon followed. Naaman obeyed the words of the man of God. He became the recipient of God's only provision for his cleansing. Naaman obeyed the words of the man of God and he was fully restored. Note that. Not just like he was before, but with the skin like a little child. He was completely renewed here, and then some. Naaman finally looked to God's prophet for the cure. Instead of, you know, actually, you know, he'd actually looked to the prophet for the cure and not heeded the words of the prophet. If you catch the distinction there. But once he listened to the words of God through the prophet and obeyed, that's when he was cleansed. Naaman once thought Elisha's God was just one God among many, but now he's cleansed. And the way it happened, not by the waving of a prophet's magician hands, but by heeding the words of God, he convinces this Aramean, God convinces this Aramean of the greater truth. And it's this, like anyone who's been given a new heart by God, Naaman goes to where God's word is found and and he returns to the one who has given him God's words. In verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. His leprous skin gone and now here is this public profession of repentance and faith. And the irony here is most Israelites in Naaman's day were, were turning their back on God. 
um, idols, immorality, what have you. In that sense, Naaman's statement that the Lord is the one true God was a condemnation upon a sinful nation. In fact, it wouldn't be too much longer before God would allow the northern kingdom to die off. Naaman, though, would walk in the newness of life. True faith in the one true God always results in a changed life. It always results in a changed life. There's no such thing, beloved, in Scripture as a carnal Christian. If we believe God is powerful enough to save, do we not believe God is powerful enough through His Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of His Son just like He says He will? That was Naaman. That's what was happening to Naaman. First he tries to give Elisha a gift and Elisha refuses because the Lord's the one who deserves center stage. Elisha doesn't want to accept payment like the yes men of the wicked kings. Naaman asked for two loads of dirt. That's, there's some debate as to why he did that. My two cents on that is maybe, you know, this isn't what I think. Maybe he wanted a souvenir. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but more likely, as revealed by what he's going to say in a second, he wanted the dirt to build altars so he could sacrifice to the God of Israel using Israel's dirt. That's my thought on that. Naaman said to Elisha, I will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will I sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. So what's happening now? God is now holy to Naaman. God is now unique to Naaman. God is now sovereign to Naaman. God is now the Lord to Naaman. The only real God. And he would have to go back and live his life with this new faith. Just as Christians, we are called to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world. We have to live in this world. We have this kind of dual citizenship where we have our citizenship in heaven, but here we are in this world for the time being. And we're called to live here. Naaman would have to go back into the service of the king of Aram. And he knew that being in the service of the king of Aram meant he would have to go into the temple of Ramon, the house of Ramon. And he would have to, to go there with the king. And he wants... Elisha to know he's going to be in this tough spot. So basically he asked the prophet for permission. Can I go? Because I'm not going to actually worship Ramon when I'm there. You know, it wouldn't have been the first time a godly man, a prophet even, was working in the service of a wicked king. In 1 Kings 18 there was a man by the name of Obadiah. Not the Obadiah of the book of Obadiah, but a different one. Later we're going to find Nehemiah, Daniel, So Elisha says, go in peace. So Naaman found grace and mercy in the eyes of the Lord. The healing of Naaman, beloved, is this beautifully vivid picture of our salvation, if indeed you are of the faith of Jesus Christ this morning. You see, here's the thing. We, you, I, we are the lepers. We are the the helpless sinners who need to be cleansed. And there's no earthly remedy to our spiritual leprosy. There's nothing we can take. There's nothing we can do about our own condition. It takes the act of another. It takes the sovereign act of a sovereign Lord. God in His sovereignty cleansed Naaman's heart. And God is sovereign over all. And He cleanses all men everywhere who humble themselves and come to Him by faith. And Jesus said as much in Luke 4 very early in his ministry. 
He goes into Nazareth, which is where he grew up. He goes into the synagogue and he says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What Jesus was doing there is he was trying to show those fellow Jews, those religious people, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the one who had come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he proclaimed using Naaman as his example that God will save both Jews and Gentiles. But the people didn't like what he had to say. And so they rioted and Jesus' own townspeople just about threw him off a cliff. Those religious people, people who supposedly trusted in Elisha's God, didn't want to accept that God was in the business of saving people on his terms, not on their terms much less people who didn't necessarily walk and look and talk like them. But again, God is sovereign over all, and He saves all men everywhere who come to Him humbly in repentance and faith. The sovereign Lord saves leprous hearts. Tragically, this was true in Elisha's time, this is true in Jesus' time, this has been true since the Garden of Eden. Some who are in the greatest proximity to the Word of God harden their hearts. In verse 20, there's a man named Gehazi. He's Elisha's servant. And he didn't like that Elisha didn't accept Naaman's gift, so he thinks maybe I can line my own pockets. So after Naaman leaves, he goes and runs after him, and Naaman stops, and Gehazi concocts this story about sons of the prophets needing talents and and, and Naaman has this new heart and and this new heart that will give of self. And so he gives without question. He doesn't hesitate. And Gehazi goes back. And what happens when he goes back is that the last two verses of this chapter, as I've turned many pages here, he says, then Elisha said to him, where have you been? Gehazi says, your servant went nowhere. Then Elisha said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. The the point here is that Gehazi could not have been in more proximity to the Word of God. But there's a difference between proximity to the Word of God and faith in that God. Always hearing it, he was always around Elisha, and yet while he may have nodded in agreement every time Elisha uttered any kind of words, he closed his heart to Elisha's God. He was dead on the inside. And in that condition, he'd be a leper forever. Physically and spiritually. Naaman, on the other hand, was initially resistant to God's provision for his cleansing. But God broke through and inevitably he was convicted of his sins and obeyed the word of God in faith and he was made like new. So the question as we come to a conclusion here is where does that leave you and me this morning? Because this morning, every single one of us has access to the Word of God. And the question when we walk out that door will be whether or not we are bound in spiritual leprosy, in pride, in self-sufficiency, believing we're alright, 
Are you worshiping this morning a God you have fashioned in your own image? Or are you worshiping the God of the Word? Are you worshiping a God in accordance with your own desires and conceptions of who God is and what God should be like and what God should permit? Or are you trusting in the God of the Word? If you are the former, then as the man of God sent to preach the Word of God to you today, I say, God has told you how you must be cleansed. Repent of your sins. Believe. Follow me. Were the words of Jesus in Mark 1, 15-20. That God would save through a man dying on a cross and rising from the dead is as preposterous as thinking bathing in the Jordan River will clear leprosy. But that's exactly what God has done. The Father sent His Son, God sent Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. Jesus bore the full fury of the wrath of His Father for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe that all who trust in Him might be forgiven their trespasses and credited with that righteousness that we sang earlier we must long for. And not only that, on the third day He rose from the grave through the glory of the Father, never to die again, and He lives today, and everyone who has been made alive by His Spirit will live with Him. Only God knows, beloved, if you have a tomorrow to hear the words of God. And so I implore you today to hear and heed according to the mercies of God in faith. Believe in the gospel. It could be like me that you trust in Christ. Even when we're saved, we still struggle with sin. If you don't struggle with sin, I question your faith because we're at war with sin until we are in the presence of Christ. But if you look in the mirror of your heart and your life resembles more the idolatry of Israel than the cleansed heart of Naaman, then I implore you to remember what Christ has done for you and to come to Him. Purge the idols. You know, the First John closes, little children, guard yourself from idols. Whatever it is you love illegitimately in place of the Lord your God, do not go on resisting the word of the Lord, but repent of your sins and heed to the word of God. The sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord, saves leprous hearts. We, and we cannot accept the authority of God if we don't accept the authority of His Word. So lose your pride, humble yourself, as Naaman learned to do, and obey God's revealed will because the obedience of faith is the byproduct of a humbled heart. God resists the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. May He find us humble in Him by His grace. Let's pray. Father, you save people who look like us and you save people who don't look like us. You have chosen to save people even like us who have leprous hearts. And so we beseech you, Father, to cleanse us, to show us your glory, that through us you might be magnified. Show us your Son, Jesus Christ, and conform us to the image of him in whose matchless name we make these requests.
for His glory. Amen.